This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 16th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. The Hobby Lobby decision has been misunderstood and purposefully mischaracterized. Ed Whalen, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, commented on the ruling and its critics at the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event held last month. There's been lots of confused uh, public commentary about this case. That confusion, oddly enough, has continued uh, beyond the ruling, and even more oddly, part of it has uh, been from Justice Ginsburg herself, who you think ought to know better. But among other things, she's been uh, saying this, this, during this, past, this past summer that the court's ruling was a constitutional ruling resting on the free exercise clause, when, else, uh, when as I'll explain, it was clearly uh, entirely a uh, statutory ruling based on the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. She also misstated uh, the basis of, of her own dissent, and I'll get, I'll get to that in a bit. So what I'm going to do is give some background, then talk through the four main issues that the court addressed, uh, and conclude with some remarks about the aftermath of Hobby Lobby. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was enacted in 1993, it was, a, it was Congress's response to the court's 1990 decision, Employment Division v. Smith. In that case, the court ruled that neutral, generally applicable laws don't violate the Free Exercise Clause. That ruling was widely regarded as reducing the free exercise protections that had previously existed under cases like Sherbert v. Verner. And the express aim of RIFRA in 1993 was to restore, as a matter of federal statutory law, the protections that existed pre-Smith under the Free Exercise Clause. Uh, RIF is at heart a very simple statute. It, it has a threshold inquiry and then a strict scrutiny standard. The threshold inquiry uh, looks to uh, whether the government has substantially burdened a person's exercise of religion. Uh, if the answer to that question is yes, you proceed to the strict scrutiny inquiry, which asks whether the government has demonstrated, burden clearly on the government, that application of the burden to the person is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest and is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling governmental interest. The HHS mandate, uh, as I think most of you know, uh, is a regulatory implementation of Obamacare. Obamacare delegated to HHS the authority to specify preventive services that group health plans must cover and they must cover without any cost-sharing requirement. The idea is that there are certain services that you don't want to have any disincentive at the point of decision. So yes, there's payment up front, same way there is, say, on all-you-can-eat buffet. But when it comes to the, the decision you're making, whether you want X, Y, or Z for a whole range of preventive services, the idea is not, not even to have a, a $5 copay. You want to have that decision unencumbered by uh, any financial disincentive. Under the rule adopted by the administration, those preventive services include, for women, all FDA-approved contraceptives, including those drugs like Ella and Plan B and devices like the copper IUD that might sometimes operate to kill the early human embryo by preventing implantation in the womb. The rule applies to non-grandfathered group health plans. Now, very briefly, there's a long, tortuous history of the, of the mandate, but uh, you ended up with an exemption for a narrow category of religious employers you end up with, with a so-called accommodation for uh, religious nonprofits. That accommodation was designed to address the religious liberty interests of these religious nonprofits by uh, making it so they weren't paying for or suppose they weren't really involved in, uh, in, in the provision of objective to uh, drugs and services. 
And uh, as for uh, the for-profit employers who uh, don't operate grandfathered plans, the uh, mandate is to operate uh, directly against them. The administration has, has made clear that it gave no consideration at all to how the Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, applies to the HHS mandate. Intense litigation ensued. Uh, I'm going to focus on the litigation brought by the for-profit uh, entities. Uh, there's a separate wave of, of, of litigation that was somewhat deferred against the accommodation, and you're hearing a lot about that, that now. Um, basically, a whole set of Catholic and non-Catholic plaintiffs, uh, basically owners of closely held for-profit corporations and the corporate entities themselves, brought suit against the HHS mandate in courts across the country, uh, claiming uh, as the, the core of their argument that this is a violation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Typically, the Catholic plaintiffs uh, challenged the uh, contraceptive requirement in its totality that is applied to a whole range of contraceptives. Typically, non-Catholic plaintiffs challenged those drugs uh, and, uh, and devices that um, might operate to uh, kill the early embryo. Uh, there's a whole dispute that's, I think, um, uh, on the left about whether it's ever the case that these drugs and devices can operate that way. The FDA says they can. The Obama administration says they, uh, that they can. And even the brief filed by the, uh, the uh, obstetrician associations uh, acknowledged that it certainly can in the case of copper IUD and that the science is far from conclusive on the other, uh, on the other drugs. Let me briefly outline uh, who Hobby Lobby is, because a uh, central question in the case, the one that got most attention, is can this, uh, this corporate entity uh, engage in an exercise of religion? Hobby Lobby is a national chain of more than 500 arts and crafts stores with more than 13,000 full-time employees. It's a closely held family business. Its official statement of purpose says it aims to honor the Lord in all we do by operating the company in a manner consistent with biblical principles. Implementing, implementing that statement of purpose, it's closed on Sundays, obviously a great financial cost. It regularly runs newspaper ads around Christmas and Easter that are intensely evangelistic. Gives employers access to chaplains, uh, spiritual counseling, and religiously themed financial courses. Gives millions of dollars each year to ministries. Doesn't allow its trucks to backhaul beer. And does a whole, a whole set of activities that, that, that demonstrate its commitment, its owner's commitment to its, its religious principles. Uh, the same family, the Green family, also owns a chain of uh, a Christian bookstores, Mardell. Uh, you often you hear talk about secular for-profit businesses, or one of the plaintiffs in this case was a Christian bookstore, which wouldn't really seem to be a classic example of a secular uh, business. The company has faced massive fines uh, for refusing to comply with the mandate. If they continue to operate these group health plans, Hobby Lobby, for example, would face a fine of nearly $475 million a year. If they chose instead to drop uh, health coverage in addition to the, uh, the, the penalties that suffer in recruiting employees that face uh, a penalty of some $26 million a year for not providing health coverage. The court in Hobby Lobby uh, divided 5-4, the uh, four conservatives and Justice Kennedy uh, in the majority, the four liberals in dissent. Uh, basically, uh, there are four issues up for grabs. First issue is, uh, Hobby Lobby uh, capable uh, of engaging in an exercise of religion? Is its objection to these, uh, to provision of these uh, 
objected to drugs and exercise of religion. Uh, on that question, the court divided five to two with uh, only uh, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor uh, taking the position that closely held corporations were not persons capable of engaging in exercise of religion uh, under RFRA. Second issue, uh, does the mandate impose a, a substantial burden on empl employers? Is this multi-million dollar fine a substantial burden? Court unbelie unbelievably divided five to four on that. Discuss that more in detail in a bit. Third question, uh, get now past the threshold inquiry to the strict scrutiny test. Uh, does the HHS mandate advance a compelling governmental interest? On that question, the, the majority said, we're not going to decide this. There are arguments both ways. We don't need to decide this. We'll assume arguendo that such uh, an interest exists. Justice Ginsburg argued at length that, that it does. And then on the fourth issue, uh, can, has the government shown that the HHS mandate uh, is the least restrictive means of advancing uh, the assumed governmental interest? On that point, again, the court divided 5-4 with Justice Alito pointing out uh, that the accommodation that the administration has offered to religious nonprofits is, by the administration's own representations, a less restrictive means. That therefore defeats um, uh, the, the government's argument that it has somehow show, shown that the mandate, full-fledged mandate, is the least restrictive means. Let's look in some more uh, detail uh, at these. Again, first um, is, you know, can a corporate entity uh, be a person engaged in exercise of religion? Uh, Justice Alito uh, spells out, for starters, the term person in RIFRA plainly includes corporations. The Obama administration admits as much when it says that Nonprofit corporations are persons. Uh, he, he explains that the corporate form, uh, therefore, can't explain the, the exclusion. That is, if you have if nonprofit cor corporations can engage in the exercise of religion, what, how is it that for-profit corporations can't? He shows further that, that the profit-making objective has never um, excluded uh, entities from having religious protections. Um, I, Classic example here, I think, is uh, you know take a kosher deli uh, under the dissenter's view. If that deli were obligated to sell uh, uh, non-kosher meat, somehow um, it might have a religious liberty claim if it's unincorporated, but it wouldn't have one uh, if it's incorporated. You often heard from the left that the the the, the uh, assertion corporations can't pray, uh, which of course is true to which we responded in our brief, well, corporations can't, can't dance, uh, can't do a lot of other things that are protected by the First Amendment. <laughs> that doesn't mean that, that the New York Times is deprived, say, of First Amendment protection as a corporate entity when it does engage in uh, protected, uh, those, those First Amendment activities that it can engage in. Curiously, uh, this past summer, Justice Ginsburg said that her Hobby Lobby dissent, quote, really didn't turn on the difference between a corporation and a sole proprietorship. Funny, if you read it, she's saying corporations uh, can't, can't, uh, can't, have, any, can't uh, have any rights in the referee, can't engage in uh, exercises of religion, and, and leaving open the possibility that, that proprietorships could. I think what you see is her real hostility is to, to RIFRA and to the long tradition in this country that recognizes that religious liberty uh, extends to how people carry out business. Let's see, I'm told I'm running a little short on time. Let me jump quickly to uh, the substantial burden question. Again, Alito's analysis was simple. 
massive fines for noncompliance. Of course, this is a substantial burden. I think it was in uh, uh, one, the uh, Wisconsin Yoder where there's a $5 penalty on uh, fathers who refuse to send their kids to high school, and that was a substantial uh, burden. Ginsburg in instead says that somehow the connection between the family's religious objections and the contraceptive coverage requirement is too attenuated to rank as substantial. And the linkage has been, quote, interrupted by independent decision makers. Well, as, as Justice Alito spells out, she's really smuggling into the substantial burden inquiry a very different question, whether the plaintiff's views of what constitute improper moral complicity are, are acceptable. That's a question the court has made clear that the federal courts have no business addressing. There's a precedent called Thomas V. Review Board, which Justice Ginsburg made, made no attempt to confront, much less distinguish, which involved a fellow who objected to making turrets for tanks. Uh, and his, his claim was upheld, even though uh, you could say that uh, he objected to war. But it was a series of independent decisions that would uh, put the turret that he was making on the tanks, that would put the tanks that he, uh, the turrets were put on, uh, in the military, they would put those tanks in in warfare, that would then use them in warfare, and the court um, made quite clear that it wasn't the court's business to decide uh, what is and is not acceptable, um, uh, an acceptable view of improper moral complicity. On the uh, least restrictive means, the one point I want to emphasize here, because I think it's uh, been confused a lot uh, in the public, is that there is nothing in the court's approach that is to say that the, this, this accommodation uh, for the religious nonprofits is a less restrictive means. There's nothing in that analysis that requires that the accommodation itself be deemed to satisfy RIFRA. Indeed, you saw the same analysis uh, by the Chief Justice in the, uh, uh, the, the, the abortion, uh, McCullen v. Coakley, the, the abortion case, that was decided three days before, abortion protest case. There he identified a number of less restrictive alternatives that the, that the uh, state legislature might have adopted while making clear that it wasn't endorsing the constitutionality of any of those alternatives. So it's enough under RIFRA to say, government, you haven't shown that this is the least restrictive alternative because instead of doing A, you could do B. And if, when we if someone challenges B, you might, they might be able to show you could, uh, you could have done C. And they challenge C, you might be able to show you could have done D. But we don't have to show that, that B somehow um, is, is satisfactory. It makes no sense to put that burden on, on, on the uh, plaintiff challenging uh, the, the government action. Let me uh, finish up by observing um, that the, there's a Wheaton College order that quickly followed on the on tails of the Hobby Lobby ruling. Uh, there, the dissenters, um, without Breyer, Justice Breyer actually, um, claimed that the majority was acting contrary to what it did in Hobby Lobby. Actually, all, all that the, the, the court said in, Wheaton, in the Wheaton College order is, um, uh, th this accommodation, uh, we're giving you relief from this accommodation, Wheaton College. Wheaton College is a religious nonprofit. And there's nothing in there that was inconsistent with the treatment that it, that, that it gave uh, the mandate. Finally, I'll mention uh, Professor Richard Epstein has uh, an essay in the book that's been handed out to you on Hobby Lobby. Uh, as always with uh, uh, Professor Epstein, it's provocative and interesting. I will say that I think it's wrong on almost every major point, as well as some minor ones. Um, among other things, I think it's uh, grossly unfair of uh, Professor Epstein to fault Justice Alito for not assuming that he has four colleagues who are Richard Epstein. Uh, and uh, so I'll just leave it at that. Thank you. <laughs>
Ed Whalen is president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can get your copy of Cato's Supreme Court Review at our website, cato.org.